The following is a conversation with Jamari Peterson, developer, entrepreneur, venture capitalist. This is the Atria podcast, where we bring light and ventilation to the crypto Web3 space. I'm Joe McKeating. All views expressed on this show are those of the individuals expressing them, and nothing said on this show is intended to be taken as financial advice. Please like and review the Atria podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, as it helps us rank higher and reach a broader audience. So Jamari, when I introduced you as developer, entrepreneur, venture capitalist, you're involved with a lot of projects. You are uh, the core strategist at Snowball, an advisor at Arceus, a member at A Ventures, which is a, a Dow venture capital firm, which we definitely need to dig more into uh, how that works for, for new listeners. It's a decentralized autonomous organization, really a totally new way of looking at venture capital, as well as an advisor at Blockchain Microbonds and the founder at FiHub, which is how you and I met at the Circle Conference recently. So with all that said, when somebody asks you, what what do you do for a living? What What is it that, that you say or how do you explain it? Yes, um, it's a pleasure to be here. Typically when someone asks me what I do, I tell them um, I build things in the Web3 space. Um, sometimes I use the, um, I'm working in, in FinTech, except for in the more of the cryptocurrency space. Um, but, but most often I tell them I'm, I'm building projects in, in the cryptocurrency space. Um, I'm trying to make things that make it uh, onboarding easier, um, more effective, more efficient, and and I want to make it more accessible for people that, that, that share my kind of experiences. Let, let's talk about that first with your uh, experience with FiHub. Um, that's what you and I were talking about when we first met, and we there's a lot of crossover in our missions in terms of onboarding people into Web3 in a way that's engaging, informative, safe, not scammy, because as, as much as both of us believe in this space, it's just the nature of any new technology. Uh, you do have to be careful about you know who you're listening to and who you're learning these things from. So uh, maybe tell listeners a little bit more about FiHub and what, what's your mission there? What are you trying to do? Yeah, FiHub was birthed from the work that I actually did with, with Snowball. Snowball, so it's important to, to, if I talk about FiHub, to mention Snowball first. Snowball was initially an auto compounder and yield optimizer. Basically, that they took rewards that were generated on Avalanche and then they would compound those to add them to the underlying underlying asset. So if you took um, USDC, which is a stable coin, and someone was rewarding you for providing liquidity, we would take those rewards, sell them, and get more USDC. So, so you earn more. Now, we had to do that for multiple platforms. And then we had to provide education about the various assets. And we decided to abstract all that into a more agnostic perspective to say, how do we aggregate all the functionality of the smart contracts, all this DeFi Web3 functionality into one platform, and then allow people to learn about what they're doing and execute it in the same place. And we believe that that would be a perfect way of engaging new users by providing them a roadmap of everything that exists in the space, and not just the information, but the ability to activate what they're reading, discovering, hearing about at that same time. So FiHub was kind of designed to be that financial hub, to, to be that all, all aboard place for Web3. And is it a part of Snowball? Is that the right way to think of it? 
Yeah, so Snowball developed over time to be more of a venture studio perspective. So we launched other protocols such as Axial, which is a stable swap, which is similar to an, an exchange that are focused on assets that have similar value. Um, they they are governing over the Teddy protocol, which is a algorithmic stable coin, which uses Avox, which is from the Avalanche gas token, as the basis for collateral, which allows you to mint um, stable coins that are at minimum 150% collateral basis. Um, so we govern a lot of different protocols, and that gives a really good perspective. And FiHub, um, we did the initial resource dedication to establish the FiHub and bringing it to being, and now I'm leading that effort to, to grow it into something that can have a massive impact. So you're very involved in Avalanche, which I want to get get deeper into a little bit later in this conversation. But a lot of people listening to this will, at, at this stage, just be a little bit more familiar with DeFi protocols in the Ethereum ecosystem. When you're talking about Snowball and the different offerings um, on there, the 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 approach is th are there comparisons to similar protocols on Ethereum that maybe would help people um, uh, vi visualize or, or, or make sense in their, in their minds, especially if they're familiar with some of the, uh, with some of the, the Ethereum protocols. Yes, absolutely. So on Ethereum, I actually was the core, well, I was not core, I was a strategist for Pickle Finance and Pickle Finance was Fort uh, work from Yearn Finance, which is probably one of the largest um, yield optimizers and on, on the network. Um, so they they kind of look like a family right now, and their work is actually very similar to what Snowball was doing on the the Avalanche network. Um, Avalanche, um, I will operate what's called on, on the C chain, which is the which uses the Ethereum virtual machine. So it works just like Ethereum, except for it runs on the avalanche consensus mechanism their methodology of actually resolving all transactions and making sure that they're in order and functioning correctly so they both use solidity so we actually are a fork uh, of that same code for, from pickle finance that we continue to move forward and used on the avalanche network towards the exchanges and other platforms that are there i think this is a good time and hopefully you don't mind me uh, slowing this down a little bit because I want to get into the really technical stuff. We have a broad uh, kind of spectrum of of listeners on here. And so uh, you and I are talking pretty technical right now about yield optimizers, EVM, Eth Ethereum virtual machine. And maybe it's uh, just worth, uh, you know, so people, so no one drops off because I want to have a very technical conversation just to try to like bring them along with us on some of this. Um, uh, I, maybe I'll take a stab at Ethereum virtual machine and then and then throw it back to you to explain uh, a yield optimizer. Although it may seem obvious what the name uh, the name means, what it what it says it means. But um, I think in in DeFi we're so deep into this that it can be uh, that we, we need to you know make sure we're uh, pulling everybody along with us. I I think the the easiest way to think of the Ethereum virtual machine. You you tell me if you if you see it differently, of course, but. Um, I think the best way to think about the Ethereum virtual machine would basically be like the operating system for Ethereum. Um, but as opposed to iOS on your on your Apple devices or or Android, this is a, a distributed uh, operating system. So something a little bit different than what we've seen in the past where the the so Ethereum itself, you know, you can think of it as a global supercomputer, basically, right? And the Ethereum virtual machine is the operating system, which other 
uh, other tools in in your in your toolbox in that network can plug into. And so we'll say that uh, different protocols are EVM compatible. That means that they're compatible with that Ethereum um, operating system, even if that's not a perfect way to put it. That's that's a way to think about it. And so Jamari, I'd like to you know get get your thoughts, especially as a, you're an engineer, right? So we're going to talk more about your background, but you'll, you'll, you'll set me straight on some of the technical stuff if I'm off base there at all. And then uh, uh, maybe get into a little bit of the, the yield optimizer and some of these other technical terms. No, I thought that was a perfect explanation. Um, I believe when they first launched Ethereum, they really thought about it as being this world computer. Um, basically, multiple people are running the same operating system, and then they're coming to agreement about what functions are being called. And that agreement and that operating system together creates that Ethereum virtual machine. Um, it's a virtual computer that's running across the world by multiple people. And then when we talk about yield optimizing, essentially that is a that yield optimizing comes from the fact that um, within the Ethereum virtual machine, especially on Ethereum, um, the, the original mainnet, it was difficult to get central limit order books. So basically, when you normally think about stocks, you think about people doing buy, sell, right? And they're matching orders simultaneously. Now, that is difficult on the Ethereum virtual machine, particularly on Ethereum, the mainnet, because there's a time for settlement between um, that can range from 60 seconds to, to six minutes. Um, and that settlement time makes it difficult to match orders because people can then do things like trying to get a, a ahead of your order called front running or they can um or it could be de delayed outside of a time period when that order doesn't make any sense anymore right so therefore they created a different system called um, automated market makers or amms and this system allows you to actually provide liquidity for both sides of that trade and by doing that it makes it easier for people to make trades because the liquidity for that it on both sides is there and, and you're just moving back and forth around what's available and there's a thing called slippage now to provide incentive for people to provide liquidity there a lot of protocols are providing rewards or incentives for people to provide that liquidity whether it's interest whether it's fees whether it's um a governance tokens and those governance tokens are often not in that underlying asset so your underlying asset might say i'm giving um ethereum and usdc or USD, because I want to allow people to trade between those two. But I might give you the Jamari token on top to provide you incentive to provide that liquidity. And then a yield optimizer or an auto compounder would sell that, that, that extra yield and then and compound it. Or a yield optimizer might find the three places that are providing um, opportunity to provide liquidity and switch between whatever is providing the highest rates that day. So that's where yield optimizing and auto compounding fit into the space. And that's one of the things as well, these, these AMMs, as you mentioned, these automated market makers, pretty big innovation uh, in DeFi compared to what we've had in the past when you're talking about these, these order book uh, models. It also creates an environment that we've never seen before where markets are open 24 7 365 and part of the reason for that is these these models uh that we're seeing here um i think before we move on and talk about more about FiHub, because i want to kind of press on that i think the education is so important let's talk a little bit about your background before we get too far in the conversation i think it'll be helpful for listeners to know that um 
we've had some amazing guests on the podcast so far, but you are by far the most uh, technical as, as a developer. So you have a degree from Howard University. You then went for a PhD at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, where I'm from, uh, engineer. So but tell us a little bit about your your both your background, but also your your uh, academic background and kind of qualifications to to speak about this. Um, so, like, kind of in depth as as an engineer, which uh, way 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 deeper than I can sometimes. Yeah. So, I went to Howard University, as you said, for my undergrad, which is in Washington D.C. Um, went for civil engineering for my undergrad because um, I always knew that I want to be involved in development. So, my first perspective was infrastructural development. How do I um, make the built world look different. Then I went to the MBA program at Howard um, for strategy and logistics. And from there, I really started thinking about how do I provide a more holistic approach to, to, to engineering, to its impact, to development, economic and infrastructural. So I went to Carnegie Mellon, like you said, which is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which I, I'm really bad at geography. I just knew it, it was right next to Philly and it's nowhere close to Philadelphia. And so my wife, was, my, my soon-to-be wife was kind of quite upset at, at our location, not being where we thought it was gonna be. Um, but I went to Carnegie Mellon, I love Pittsburgh, um, went there for engineering public policy, which really the merging of, of the technical aspects of, of like risk assessment, of design, and how it impacts people. And that really, um, it, that became the mechanism for me actually to discovering the cryptocurrency Web3 space. Because um, I was looking into ways of doing voting, um, like a web-based voting where people can opt in to the things that they want to vote on or delegate it to other people. I ended up finding out that that was called li li um, like liquid democracy. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, so there's somebody named this already, cool. Um, so basically I started delving into the space, into Ethereum, learned about um, kind of the weaknesses and strengths of it, ended up being part of the team, that was a co-founder of the Quantum Resistant Ledger. And the Quantum Resistant Ledger was basically designed as a means of mitigating the future issue of quantum computing. So really it was a really technical perspective of what this technology was capable of. But from that, I really had the, I got the bug for, what was interesting about this space, which is it was uh, aggregating, bringing together people around common values, around common systems, and then using that technology to facilitate them moving value digitally around the world. And that was a really powerful concept to me. And then from that, I really started delving into DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, governance around various ways of of doing proof of stake and consensus, start looking at ways of improving the, the speed uh, on chain using things called DAGs, which are direct asymmetric graphs. And basically all these things I started studying, looking at to end up coalescing into what I saw um, Avalanche was doing. So Avalanche became a new medium for me to express um, some of the things I, I wanted to build in the space, which are called dApps often, decentralized applications. So I ended up working with, with Pico Finance. I, I became a consultant for, for Aragon, which is a governance platform that builds out all the tools people need to launch um, the operational aspect of a decentralized organization. And all that kind of wrapped up to me being on, on Avalanche of building out Snowball ecosystem and now FiHub, which is meant to me coming back to what I want to do at the beginning, which kind of provide a means of anybody accessing information and kind of voting it, it interacting with the things that that they value and care about. So I often hear engineers say that when we reach uh, kind of the, the 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 middle part of the quantum computing age or even early in the quantum computing age, 
your passwords are going to be useless. Um, uh, even your seed phrases and in cryptocurrency for for listeners who are new, your seed phrases are essentially a, a proxy uh, for your private keys. And your private keys are what are used to access, transfer your cryptocurrency. Let's talk about that for a minute, if that's what you meant by mitigating the risk of, of quantum computing. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, no, absolutely. So basically, the way that um, Bitcoin and Ethereum work is that you, you use your, your private, private key to sign off transactions. And it is really difficult. It's easy for you to encrypt inf information, but it's difficult to re reverse the order. So it's like a, a one-way encryption. Um, however, what quantum computing will eventually provide is the ability to, once you made a transaction, like you would have um, signed an actual transaction with your private key, which would then provide a mechanism to be able to de decrypt what your what your private key is. This is not an issue until quantum computing reaches a, a certain threat threshold, which we are not anywhere near at the moment. But from a life cycle perspective of financial technology, you want to think seven to twenty years ahead, because you actually have to think about the the life cycle and the transition from one system to another. Um, so like, and especially when it comes to voting, things of that nature, you want a long time before nobody, somebody knows what your vote was, right? <laughs> so somebody be able to, to access your, your information and the decrypt information is an issue. So yes, when that happens, it's going to be an issue across the board, nationally, internationally, around the way that um, passwords are encrypted and whatnot. However, post-quantum cryptography creates mechanisms and ways that makes it less um, less likely and more difficult to actually um, unravel, de de decrypt what was occurring with your private key. But it, it is a vulnerability across the board right now for anybody using what's called elliptical key cryptography as a means of creating private keys and public keys and signing transactions. Because once you sign, it provides the, the evidence and information needed for it to um, resolve. And elliptical key uh, cryptography, um, listeners who are a little bit more uh, well-versed in the space and actually have even listened to the podcast because we had someone from Elliptic on earlier. I believe that's where that that name is going to come from. So just kind of a little fun fun industry fact uh, there. Is that, where, is that where you think we are about seven to 20 years out from quantum computing, just changing everything or seven to 20 years from when you started that? that uh that venture yeah so um i actually um i know that at the point of i started we had ibm um reaching the point of being able to actually have um scalable pieces of a modular ar architecture um i have not seen or heard evidence of them scaling out to a way that starts um accelerating the pace and, and the concern we do have the distributed um access to quantum computing now, which pr provides the basis for, once we have the scalability, we have we know we have the access to anybody in the world to, to leverage this for, for various purposes, beneficial and, and also um, quite disastrous potentially. So um, I think we have time about seven to 10 years, I think is still about where we are. It's a moving time frame based upon the, the jumps in progress, but we know there's been substantial investment in that area. And if you are interested in that area, I would definitely encourage you for always to look into it. Um, it's a nice burgeoning area that's gonna really change a lot of dy dynamics of, uh, of FinTech, of pharmaceuticals, uh, of the way comp computation in general works. Um, it's a very fascinating space that is also gonna be integrated into I think a lot of the the Web three space in the future as well, because then you have ways to mitigate um, 
like um, v- vulnerabilities. Like if you have ways of actually creating private keys that that are un- that are un- unbreakable, un- unhackable, then that's going to be very powerful for now, even empowering people more to be able to operate in the side of a decentralized manner. If you have a have a quantum network, and quantum networks are being worked on. Is it is it possible that uh, we get to a point where a private key really is unhackable, or is anything unhackable? Well, I mean, you always have the, the crowbar. I mean, <laughs> as, yeah. as a as a mean of a, of a security risk, but from a from a, a digital decryption part, yeah, like quantum entanglement and things of that nature really provide a, a really useful way of, of of structuring things that doesn't provide the the foundation for somebody to to hack it externally. Got it. Okay, I had to take a little detour there for quantum computing when I have someone like you on the on the podcast. Can't miss that opportunity. But I want to go back to CMU when you were at and, and at Howard actually when you were um, getting before before CMU. But the reason I bring CMU up is CMU is such a renowned engineering, robotics, kind of a tech tech focused and engineering type school. Uh, but at both Howard and CMU. Um, what was the, I'm trying to think how to phrase this correctly, like what what were the attitudes around crypto web three at the time? I think there's probably even prior to like web three terminology and um but what 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 was what was it like there when you're when you when you're thinking about getting into crypto web three? Were people like everybody's really interested in this or were you getting like what what, what are you doing? You know, what are you thinking? Yeah, so I came into the space in 2016. Um, I went to Howard from 2004, 2008. So in the 2004, 2009, Bitcoin was created, I believe, in 2009. Um, so therefore, it was a conversation when I was really at Howard. As to CMU, um, wasn't really a conversation yet at that point. Actually, even when I got into the space, I was trying to find other people from CMU who were involved. I mostly met people from like Stanford and, and, and MIT at that point who, who were engaged um, w- with the Web3 cryptocurrency space. Um, I think the, the the issue, for for me at least, was the, the cultural groups that actually was around. It wasn't a, a discussion piece. The movie Dope did come out at some point in that period. However, it didn't, um, and Dope was a movie that was about a drug dealer, but they, they used Bitcoin to actually try to um, watch their money. And essentially, I, I heard about Bitcoin via that mechanism, but it didn't resonate to me as anything besides that thing. It didn't come across as a tool for empowering people um, to actually kind of express their values. And once I came to that understanding is when I became interested in it. And I was more so because I was looking into other technologies that I discovered the space. So majority of my work and learning in this space has been from a remote perspective of reaching out and learning independently and not having the opportunity to engage until I was in the space. And once I was in the space and I was going to meetups, um, I was going to conferences, I was going to various events to rub shoulders, to to, to um, discuss, to powwow about what the space was capable of. But going back to, uh, say, 2016, when, when you entered the space, were, uh, were there people in your life, probably still good friends, trusted advisors who uh, were just like, what, what, what are you doing? You know, you, you, got, you, have the, you have this great engineering background. Why are you going into this space? 
Well, no, too. Funny enough, the only person I really talked to about it initially, because I, I was kind of exploring and didn't want to talk about anything that I understand yet, was actually my, my mom and, and my wife. So I had my mom put a little bit into it, and I put a little bit into it. Uh, my mom actually put, put, put more into it than I did at the time. So she did she did much better in the beginning than that I did. <laughs> um, but I mean, initially, I want to make sure I understood what I was getting into. I want to understand the, the dynamics, the, the potential impact before I told anybody. Um, because people in my community often are um, exploited. So I want to make sure that, <laughs> that I did the due diligence before I started providing that pathway and on-ramp to tell the people um, within my community and my network. But by 2017, I definitely was, <laughs> was singing it to the heaven. So people were, were engaging uh, a little bit. And then um, I always want to make sure they understood this is fundamentally empowering. It's not about the price. It's about fundamentally what you're capable of doing with, with, with this tool. And I think that that served people that I brought in at that time really well. And I think they, I think that's another reason that uh, you and I um, connected uh, and, and our missions resonated with one another about the education, because my view is that I, I'm kind of building on what you just said about not worrying too much day to day about the price of a particular price of Bitcoin, the price of Ethereum. Um, I mean, in, in time, of course, it, that is an important consideration if you have a, if you have a major investment there, but um when you have really a deep understanding and start to see the vision for what some of these futures might be and there there's legitimate criticisms and maybe you don't see that that vision for that future maybe it's not something that you're interested in but when, when you do and when it's something that you're interested in when you have this deeper level understanding about the whole picture I explain it as being very deep rooted in it where you don't you, you're like a tree deep rooted in the ground. You don't really get blown around day by day. And, um, you know, I there's a decent amount of acquaintances in my life who still don't kind of completely know what I'm doing with Atria and think I'm maybe just a cryptocurrency trader or something. And they'll say, oh, rough day, huh? Like things prices are really down. And I, I it really almost couldn't matter less to me. Uh, on a on a day to day basis, it's not what I'm interested in, and I'm deep rooted in this. And I and and I just just I don't get blown around with the highs and the lows of these these price dips. So it sounds like maybe you have a a similar experience at this point where you're you're clearly in this for the long run. No, absolutely. I, I think I came into the space full time in 2018. Uh, so started in 2016, full time to 2018. So for the last for four years, um, and you see a, a lot of fluctuation. However, aside from making sure that, that that you set yourself up for for what you need for your lifestyle, I think a, a lot of it is about you're you're building the, the future. You're establishing what um, tomorrow could look like to, to today. And if you're taking that that perspective of you're you're laying the groundwork for something that's that's greater than what existed before that has the potential to rectify issues in the past, I think that creates a, another level of value that people often forget in the mix of talking about the monetary value. And I believe that that's going to come that that comes and that will continue to come, but it's going to be founded and rooted upon um, for fundamental um, values and, and and intrinsic benefits. Um, such as um, for, for, for freedom, privacy, um, accessibility, um, ownership in, in new ways and community. And when you look at the progression of the industry right now, and we see a lot of, um, let's call them legacy financial institutions um, getting into the space. I think um, 
I think a lot of companies in the tech and finance world are starting to come around on seeing at least the practical value of this technology. That said, there are a lot of promises that um, that that crypto through the crypto community makes to people, and it are they are these things: censorship, resistance, uh, accessibility, banking the unbanked is is something the unbanked or underbanked, uh, which is is something that's been spoken a lot about. How do you feel like how would you give it a letter grade maybe? How do you think the industry is doing on that? Do you think that's starting to slip a little bit? Do you think these promises are true? Uh, I have not seen s- sufficient evidence that that they have moved the the needle in the communities that need it at large. that there are, um, specific examples of them demonstrating w- w- what's possible, but I think at, at a scalable level, uh, we, we haven't demonstrated that yet. So it's so in the spectrum of early, early adoption and kind of people learning. I think it's it's just around a, a C. I mean, it, 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 it's 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 an average experience. <laughs> I mean, I think it's really technical, but I mean, um, some communities are reaching it. Um, some communities are being changed. Um, a, a lot of the old old like existing traditional um, financial institutions are still uh, often the beneficiaries of uh, what's happening. So so, so that kind of keeps it from being a B. (laughs) Um, But I think uh, as we continue to expand and people recognize the power of what's being created from the community perspective and from the ownership aspect, you you will have the ability to have more of a groundswell of of them engaging in and and understanding the power that that they wield and then turning that into value that matters for changing their, their lives. So we're not there yet. Um, that's what we're trying to build, the, the mechanisms for scale, right? The, the mechanism for new people to come in on board and then activate and engage in what's reasonable for them and accessible for for where they are in, in the location and their whatever purchasing power they might have. I think I think another reason that, uh, well, I would agree with you on that and, and a reason that I would probably give it a C there's what I brought up the question about some of the what's what's promised and and the values that are espoused but then also the experience uh this is something that you are focused on which is one of the reasons the space right now would probably get a C as a which I, I would agree that would be a fair grade is that the UI UX is not great that said people often throw their hands up at that make fun of that you know poke fun at it it seems to be really like the natural way for these cycles to work though. You look at uh, the internet of the mid nineties. I mean, that UI UX is, it belongs in a museum, you know, or like already it's, it's kind of funny to look at now. Uh, but we've very clearly have seen what, what that became. So uh, what are you, what are your thoughts on, on the UI UX? Where, where do we stand? What do we need to improve and what, what are you doing? Yeah, so uh, essentially when it comes to UI UX, UI UX is, is typically the, the mechanism, the means, I think, for, for onboarding masses of new people. Like if you think about things like, like Google and Facebook, right? Um, even in MySpace, there were search engines before Google and Google did have to improve search engines, but also what, what mattered was that the, the experience of engaging with it, the, the, the results that came out of it were better for, for discovery and, and, and access. So the user experience of what they was able to, to actually pull out of the other data, what was more important than the algorithm itself. Because I think there have become search engines that are just as good or efficient, but their user experience aren't necessarily 
as efficient or effective for people's needs. Um, I think Wolfram Wolfram Alpha, right, is really good for certain certain types of search, right. But outside of that, it doesn't provide the user experience that people need for their for their day to day use. So it's not it's not kind of the oh I'm going to go use Wolfram Alpha to go search for stuff. Um, when it comes to social networks, um, MySpace was there kind of improved that that user experience from having to use GeoCities and things where you're doing everything from scratch. Then you have Facebook, which had a more of a curated experience that allowed you to kind of get the information and the connections that you wanted specifically. Um, so it wasn't like crazy new features. It was really a sharpening of that experience for people that that kind of honed in what, what they cared about, what they needed, and just discovering what their friends, specifically what their friends were doing or had done or were going and things of that nature. That's the same thing that we're kind of missing in the Web3 space. We kind of have all these things going on, but the sources and the ways that we have to bring it together is really ad, ad hoc and, and quilted together like it's out of a messy way. And we need a place that actually allows users to discover what they want to do inside of an accessible, easy to un understand manner. And that's kind of where, where FiHub is in this perspective, is we're thinking about where that transition needs to come in from moving to, you can do all these things in all these places, but you need a place now to understand, to, to, to congeal and, and to discover in an understandable way what's happening in the space. And UI UX, I should have pointed out when I said that. I think most people are familiar with those initialisms, um, but they mean user interface and user experience, uh, how you go about using these products. And because you brought up Google, fun fact for listeners, Google was originally called Backrub. And as that's become part of the common lexicon like Kleenex, and we say, I'm going to Google that, whether you're just searching for something using any tool. I don't know if I could imagine someone saying, I'm going to Backrub that question uh doesn't doesn't really roll off the tongue as well so uh, kudos to them for for landing on a, a little bit of a better name eventually i'm i'm gonna rub that real quick <laughs> yeah it just it doesn't it doesn't really work right um all right next order of business that i would like to get to you are very involved with avalanche including the projects that you're working on uh, seem to mostly, if not exclusively, be on Avalanche. You're a member of A Ventures, which is a Dow venture capital firm focused on the Avalanche ecosystem. Avalanche, we have Bitcoin, we have Ethereum, then we have alternative, what we call layer ones, everyone. So uh, Avalanche is an alternative layer one blockchain. Uh, Solana is an alternative layer one blockchain, and there's there's many, many more. Um, from my view, Avalanche's uh, differentiating factor kind of pitch um, has always been uh, scalability, uh, faster settlement times. And when we're saying faster, faster than what? Uh, usually these comparisons are to Ethereum. Uh, faster uh, settlement times. And then uh, an interesting concept called subnets, where anybody can really kind of create their own private blockchain. Um, you from with your engineering background, it'd be interesting to hear like what's appealing from an engineer's perspective with this tech stack. Why are you so bullish on Avalanche? Do you believe in a multi-chain future? And uh, yeah, that's a, that's probably enough enough questions to get started. Yes, no. Um, I came to Avalanche because first of all, um, when I was reading up on the consistency mechanism um, of Ethereum, um, I found out that you're using a modified version of of the Ghost protocol. And the Ghost Protocol was written by um, these 
these uh, two um, PhD students and maybe a professor in, in Israel, and and they were working on inclusive blockchains, and they were basically marching towards using what's called a DAG, a direct acyclic graph. So if if uh, if blockchains are really using a mechanism of of taking one set of transactions and then using that to actually create the, the the next set of transactions and then kind of wrapping those up over and over again um, in a chain, essentially, over and over, then then a DAG is actually creating all, all, all these branches that are then consolidated back into the into the transaction or into your set at the end. And that provides you the, the ability to have um, more, more transactions happening at, at a time, increasing your speed. So I was really interested in that concept, and I heard that Avalanche was using DAGs or direct acyclic graphs as a means of accelerating the, the settlement of transactions. And in addition to that, they had this thing called um, finality, which is the, the ability to have co confirmation that the transactions that happened are not going to be changed. So normally on Bitcoin and Ethereum, you have this thing called um, reorgs or reorganizations, which is like if you're trying to do this in transactions, you might find out, oh, something different happened over here, and you might have to unravel this and then start and do a di different one and make that, that chain again, and you're reorganizing what's happening. So therefore, there's a little bit of uncertainty that occurs during transactions and makes it kind of worrisome if you're making large transactions, you don't want a reorg to happen. So in the case of, of Avalanche, then that reorg thing, if you have sub-second finality, you know in one second or less, you're going to have a final say about the transactions that occurred, which is very powerful. So, so, so that was interesting to me. And then we talk about subnets, which is um, like I said, subnetworks, is basically they're using something they call a layer zero because their consensus is that one layer. And then they're allowing you to, to validate that and additional networks if you're part of that an initial set of validators for consensus. So, so, so you're a subnetwork because you always have to validate um, the transactions on, on, on that main layer. And then you can validate things on top of that. So that creates this ability to have a common, uh, a common security layer but to be able to build separate things um, or within the network. So I do believe in a, in a multi-chain world, and Avalanche is interesting because they are building a foundation for multiple chains within a single e ecosystem. And I thought that was a very powerful concept, very similar to Cosmos as well, um, where Cosmos uses more of a hub system, and, and then they, they branch out. They, they don't have shared security, though. Um, but they are working. I think they had to launch a new a new white paper recently for them increasing um, some potential for shared security. But Avalanche was really leading that, that idea from, from my understanding along with its kind of speed scalability processes. Um, so, so that's kind of why I, I chose Avalanche is because it, its leadership was people that were really experienced in the space. Um, I believe the, the founder um, was a professor or adjunct professor, or assistant professor at, at, at Cornell. Um, as well as his co-founder, and they the papers are around this concept, um, as well as kind of being really, really a well-oiled team in positioning what what they're building inside the the, the larger ecosystem. So I thought it was a good place for me to have the opportunity to, to grow and help establish something that is part of that future um, financial institutions, for future community structures and DAOs and things of that nature. So, so that's kind of why I chose that. And A Ventures. Um, was actually born out of a lot of the OGs, the the the, the original developers, um, investors, builders in the Avalanche ecosystem to invest in what was growing there, as well as things that were external that that were valuable. So we're not um, 
only adventures, but we're primarily, um, we're not only avalanche, but we're primarily avalanche. And we was really investing in and in really growing what was happening with the, in the ecosystem, thinking about infrastructure, thinking about GameFi, DeFi, um, looking at insurance, and basically how do you just create a, a holistic ecosystem that is, is vibrant and, and attractive and, um, and starts to, to rival what Ethereum had already established. So I want to ask you a very specific question before we get back into digging into some of that generally that just crossed my mind while we were talking. Um, with that instant finality on Avalanche and, and newer listeners, just bear with me for a little bit because this is this is a little bit technical. But on on Ethereum, we have this concept of flash loans, and the whole idea of flash loans is possible because there's a a gap. Uh, between when a transaction occurs and when it is final, settled. Um, and the flash loan can be made and has to be paid back with a small amount of interest in that window, which could be 13 seconds. So I'd say, how could you take out a loan and pay it back with a small fee in 13 seconds? Well, you could automate it and, and it allows for some arbitrage opportunities and um Anyway, not to get way in the weeds there, but it's a pretty big deal in Ethereum and it's it's led to a lot of opportunities. Also, there have been some uh, some kind of catastrophic incidents as, as a result of that. Maybe catastrophic is too, too uh, strong of a word, but there have been some, uh, some malicious use cases of flash loans as well, especially kind of stacking them on top of each other, draining funds. But... Uh, is this idea of flash loans, does that get basically canceled out when you have this instant settlement? No, actually, flash loans are still possible um, in when you have sub-second finality because, as you said, it's automated. So you can automate a transaction to happen in that sub-second. Um, what it does minimize um, a, a little bit is um, larger arbitrage and MEV things that might happen, which is like kind of front running and things of that nature because of the, the times to hear when a transaction is happening and then actually have your computation of trying to um, get, get ahead of somebody else's transaction is minimized. So, so you do have opportunities for flash loans, but but you do have a reduction of space of people um, front running. But people still can do it if if they're close enough to where the transaction is being propagated or sent out, and they're they're hearing it first. But it does reduce the the space of concern at at, at some level. But I think at the end of the day, they're still working on ways of in, in, encrypting transactions and making it so that even those things are, are even less likely to happen. Um, I believe there was a big conversation that recently happened about encrypted exchanges, where we're basically um, your your transactions and your bids are encrypted, so as the, that they're unlocked at some set point, and that kind of mitigates like anybody being able to flash loan or arbitrage those type of things. So you explained um, with Avalanche, one of the things that appealed to you was this um if, if i'm phrasing this correctly this this dag kind of architecture or da dag like architecture um uh, where they can be folded back back in now when we talk about ethereum uh well obviously the big conversation about ethereum is scalability and um the merge just happened the the change from proof of work to proof of stake consensus mechanism but we talk about on-chain scaling solutions and off-chain scaling solutions. On-chain would be um, changes to, to Ethereum itself. We're going to get into some of the sharding, which is a data partitioning technique uh, that can, you know, kind of 
almost distribution of labor, speed up the network, find uh, off-chain scaling solutions. Sometimes we talk about the side chains and the layer two solutions, the uh, the the optimistic rollups, the zero knowledge rollups. When it comes to Avalanche with these subnets, um, I don't think we consider subnets to be uh, an off-chain scaling solution, do we? Or like, how do you, how do you think about those in comparison to one another? And then uh, maybe talk about rollups as well. Is, is, is that a thing with Avalanche? Um, so yeah, so um, rollups and and are often considered like um, a layer two solution. Like you're abstracting things that are happening on layer one to your to, to your layer two, so you can have more computational speed, different security assurances, and, and then you might settle that periodically back on on your on your layer one from your layer two. Um, subnets are actually di distinct. Uh, operations like if we talk about our operation our OS's operational networks or virtual machines, a subnet can run any virtual machine or, or, or any op operation system, and that actually provides it the ability to do serve different functionality that is d distinct from from the various uh, uh, other chains. So, so I think it's it's different in that regards. Um, now, th there are trusted. Um, kind of encrypted environments, which people use as, as also off-chain resources to, to do computations and the success of that, that on-chain as well. We um, Avalanche use that actually for, for, for the bridge between Ethereum and, and Avalanche. Um, they, they use a trusted execution environment to bridge assets from, from one chain to, 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 to the other inside of an, an efficient manner. Um, and we, we talk about like ZK rollups and whatnot. Those are using zero knowledge proofs are our, our, our mechanism that, that that you can prove what happened without having the core original information. Um, kind of like imagine that that you have a, a tunnel and then it, it kind of goes around in the other side and then there's a door right in the middle of the, of the tunnel that, that, that comes around and you can't see see where the door is. Um, but you know someone has the key to, to the door if they're able to walk in one way and come out come out the, the, the other other side. You have proof that they, they, they had the key without actually observing them going through the, the, that door. So it, it's similar for, for zero knowledge proofs. You can actually prove the, the, the results or what they did was computationally accurate without actually seeing uh, all the relevant information. So, so that's a way of actually pulling and extracting information up into a, a layer two. Um, I, I'm not completely sure how the optimistic networks work in regards to, 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 to their layer two solution, but I mean, the very, they have very basic different ways of kind of coming to assurances about the, the state of, of the, the, the layer one and making sure that it matches the, the, the layer two. Yeah, Hopefully that answered the question. Yeah. Oh, that, that was an excellent, that is honestly one of the best explanations I've heard of zero knowledge proofs up until this point. Um, very complex mathematical concept, and then it's brought into the zero knowledge proofs are brought into uh, crypto and what we call zero knowledge rollups, which is taking transactions off-chain, solving them there, putting them back on the original blockchain uh, for finality. But it is one of the most difficult things in all of crypto to explain to people. And it's one of those, um, I love that explanation. And I, I, you know, with your permission, may, may borrow that from you because I've not heard uh, it kind of explained that way. I have such a hard time explaining it to people. And it's one of the only concepts that I've come across so far in crypto where I go, look, I've listened to this professor at Stanford, this professor of engineering at UCLA, this person at MIT, and there's a there's an element of um, 
like uh, faith in them collectively that if if they're saying this makes sense and they're at this level of mathematics okay i'll, I'll i can i can get behind it but it's so, still so difficult for me to understand i think with um with optimistic rollups and i'm not sure if this is what you what you were getting at exactly but just so people understand how those work the the difference is as jamari explained the zero knowledge rollups those are uh uh dealt with off chain then put back on chain using one of those zero knowledge proofs as he explained with the optimistic rollups are solved off chain then submitted back to the back on chain and there's a there's a period in which you can which is several days uh usually yeah in which you can contest um uh a transaction and that's kind of how they solve for that 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 if it needs to go to some sort of arbitration stage, it can, and then uh, other things happen, and that can get unwound if it needs to before it gets finally settled. But that's kind of the difference between optimistic and zero knowledge rollups for people who are interested. And uh, optimistic, with we have optimism and arbitrum on on uh, Ethereum, those are definitely the most popular uh, right now. Just I mean, optimistic rollups in general. I think like zk sync, Starkware. Uh, there's some z interesting zero knowledge ones coming up. I, I think in the long run, and what do you think, Jamari? Like, I think in the long run, people think that uh, zero knowledge will kind of win the day, but it might take a while until that flippening in this sense happens. Yeah, no, um, no, that's definitely what, what people believe. I know for me, um, I'm interested in zero knowledge proofs, particularly in the application at, at the computation side. I mean, we have zero knowledge proofs around the, the actual EVM itself so that the transactions that are occurring are are, are not knowns. Um, like Zcash is a privacy-focused um, cryptocurrency. And I think having private tra transactions that are within a public ledger using zero knowledge proofs is going to be um, very, very powerful for um, allowing people to have financial transactions of various magnitudes, but still maintain um, privacy. Um, I think that's going to be very powerful. So that's really where I'm looking when I think about um, zero knowledge. But I think that that zero knowledge proof rollups are part of that pipeline to, to getting there. And again, just to draw an analogy to Ethereum, um, another glimpse into the into the future and you and i are fortunate we get to go to some of these conferences i know not everyone does and and hear um you know great people talking about this and we talk about the ethereum layer one versus some of these layer two and sidechain solutions and i think the the thought process around there again is that in the long term for ethereum really large important transactions may still take place on the layer one blockchain but day-to-day -day things are not going to take place there. They're going to take place there elsewhere on layer two, side chains, roll-ups, and then make their way back to finality for the chain. I saw someone at a conference recently, and I wish I could remember who, who it was to give them credit, but they, uh, they, they used this analogy of two people uh, uh, standing in front of a court, in front of a judge, I should say. Uh, one person was there to you know get on a million dollar claim and the other person was there for a speeding ticket like these people don't necessarily need to be in the same going through the same system for the same thing right um i thought that was kind of an interesting analogy now i say all of that to ask you with um with avalanche how how are we to think about that do we think about that in the subnet sense that 
most of the day-to-day transactions eventually take place on subnets and then they come back to a, an avalanche layer one or how do we think about that? Yeah, so the main thought is that, on, first of all, you, you have a, a lot of capacity um, on on avalanche within just a, a C chain for finality. However, you, you have the growth of, of they call it bloat um, and needing pruning of the chain and things of that nature. So that those things haven't been implemented right now. So because of that, um, people are often looking at, at, at subnets as a means of of moving some of that that compute needs elsewhere to to, to resolve transactions. How, however, when we think about um, the, the difference, the issue is composability. Often, it's like how do you build various functionality that operates on various subnets that can still compose the same way that you can when you're on one network. So, for example, on Ethereum and Avalanche, when I'm on C chain right now, like I might have an exchange and I'm auto compounding or yield optimized between two two platforms, right? If those platforms are on different subnets or different chains, how am I operating my my, my network to be able to interact with, with those various subnets in a way that's still efficient and, and effective? Composability is really nice and effective when you're on the, on the same chain. It hasn't been demonstrated that that can be effective yet via uh, subnets or via le- various layer twos or various pair chains or zones. So, so that's really what, what the main thought process. If we discover or have ways of composing transactions across various subnets or across um, having the data transfers that are efficient across multiple places, then I think we actually do reach a point where having various subnets, various parachains, various zones would be effective and be the direction that, that we're looking. But until that problem is solved, most people will try to aggregate on the main chain because that's where they can actually build their products on, on top of what exists. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, that that actually is very helpful. Just to uh, just to hit on that that for a moment, um, when we're talking about subnets, this is what you're getting about with composability. Like in in DeFi and decentralized finance, this idea of composability is really important. Which is, uh, you know, these protocols are we call them money Legos. Sometimes you can take one, stack it on top of another one, stack it on top of another one. And all of a sudden, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like with Legos. I mean, people come up with all sorts of different things. You never, never know. Uh, when, when someone has a subnet and they build a decentralized application inside of that, will that be, um, interoperable in other subnets? Right. So, so if they build a subnet, depending on what language and a operating system that they're using, they'll be able to operate within that ecosystem for sure and interacting, right? So like if I'm building my, my DAP inside um, inside a subnet because it, it was taking way too too much load on the mainnet, right? And, and I, we have millions of users. So I need I need a subnet for all my transactions. And I, I want to still be open similar to everything else. So people can build on, on my subnet for sure and, and compose things there. But if, if I'm trying to reconcile that with maybe another subnet that, that's doing another functionality that t- together makes it interesting the dynamic, that is, is the part that is is currently a, a up in the air. I have seen the discussions happening around how those things can be resolved. Um, and I think the shared the shared security the, with the similar validators is actually going to be an effective means of doing that because if you have a common set of validators, then you actually have the position now for them to have shared shared state. Of what's happening on those various subnets, so so they, they can potentially reconcile what's happening more more effectively and efficiently. So I believe it's going to be possible, but I don't think we're we're not there yet. 
Um, the last major thing I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on before we wrap up here are, well, I did want to ask you about bridges as well. Maybe you could give us a brief word on bridges, but the, the main, the main question I wanted to know from you, um, from a, you know, you, you having a more technical background, smart contracts, very, very interesting, uh, idea, basically just if this, then that auto executing predefined conditions, I don't think we've, uh, at least to my knowledge, ever seen a technology like this exploited so much early on. And maybe it is the um, this, uh, you know, steel sharpens steel or iron sharpens iron or whatever the expression is that as time goes along, these become so battle tested that they're actually the most secure type of. Uh, but what what's it like for a developer, um, you know, kind of putting this stuff out in public and if there's an if there's something to exploit, it's going to be exploited, right? You know for sure. I mean, it's it's a it's a little bit scary, and then I think that's why we always encourage people to 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 verify their, their contracts to to be clear about risks, to let people know that that we're, we're building something collaboratively, and that um, and kind of giving provenance of where things were coded. Like, is this a fork or something? What was changed in the fork, and what was edited? Um, who who's in control of of um, updates? Um, who who who's empowered to, to to do what? And making sure that that really used to provide people enough uh, enough context to, to make make their decisions for their various risk tolerances, um, tolerance with themselves. Um, yes, um, there, there is smart contract risk, um, and and we are operating inside of a space where we have these public ledgers of, of, of interactions like we do have the thefts and, and, and money laundering and exploits that, that happen out in the traditional finance world as well and i believe that those are superior number to what's happened here however there's just other there's other mechanisms that also exist to, to support them such as insurance protocols such as um uh <laughs> protections of, of legal government um which is and all we have better mechanism tracing, right? So things like, like chain analysis um, that's able to kind of unravel a lot of transactions, identify where, where funds are moved. But if there's not sufficient enforcement or ability to enforce um, basically uh, transgressions that, that happen, e even if you identify the person, then there might not be re repercussions. So until the, 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 the full system of supports that are needed exist, you are operating kind of in a wild, wild west environment. But we know even when the wild west, we had, we had train robbers. We, we, had, we, had, we had various things going on. We had, um, we had people moving money and could closing doors when, when they didn't have the funds for actually the, the loans that, that they offered and things of that nature. So there is very evident history of people acting nefariously and against, against the, the social well-being. Um, but but you start building protections around it from there. And that's where the smart contract lists for FiHub come from. We're trying to provide a way of abstracting out the the, the smart contracts so that you can have more information uh, about kind of um, is it trusted? Is is it audited? Is it verified? Um, what kind of risk tolerance might might you you have if you're interacting with this? Does it deal with with this type of asset or that type of asset. And I believe that smart contract lists as a way of actually foundationally unifying um, and abstracting out what's happening is gonna be a very powerful way of actually um, mitigating a lot of the, the issues that, that, that occur and pro providing a more scalable methodology of, um, of basically making the space accessible and, and yeah, mitigating that risk. Yeah, I think, we're, I think we'll, uh... 
hopefully as time goes along, find a way to, um, as people come to Atria, especially businesses, but also individuals to get their foundational knowledge and all of these things. Um, maybe that, maybe that'd be a good next step is, um, uh, have, you know, us coming up with some, some sort of way to send them from Atria to FiHub where, where if they want to get more, a little more technical, really start looking at smart contracts that are audited. And, um, I think that it's such important work that you're doing and, um, so much appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast today. I hope that you'll come back again. It, it was very, uh, informative and and fun conversation and listeners you know wouldn't know this unless i said so right now but we did have some technical issues in the beginning so i appreciate your patience and uh working through that with me it was an absolute pleasure the work that you're trying to do is fantastic and and it's important to this space so thank you for the opportunity to talk about the fire talk about what what i'm building i'm jamari i tell people way good remember that jamari goes safari is ferrari jamari um, feel free to connect with me on, on twitter uh our our instagram or our discord whatever medium work works for you um I, i'm always like i'm always happy to be an asset to others 